Holy Father, our Father and God in heaven, Father, we thank you for the preciousness of life. We thank you for breath in our lungs and our heart that beats. And Father, we thank you that you saw us fit to worship with you in this Sabbath day in spirit and truth. And Father, much has been invested by the church for this church family to gain a blessing. So I pray and plead that I be a blessing, not a curse to your people. I ask that you fill me with your Holy Spirit, that you use me, a broken, sinful man, to preach a beautiful, glorious message. And so, Father, may your people see your love, may your people see your redemption through the study of this prophecy that we know all too well. And may we carry this message to all the world, this we pray, in Jesus' name. We live in a very divisive world today. A world that is very, very, very partisan. Politically, this nation is very divisive. Ethnically and racially, this nation is very divisive. Even within the church, it has become very, very divisive. All sorts of theological issues, all sorts of different interpretations, all sorts of different ideas have been conflicting from progressive to conservative to present truth. Our church seems to be a church full of factions at times. But there is a solution. Because with every problem, God has a solution. And so, the servant of the Lord, the spirit of prophecy, gave a solution to the disunity in the church today. Notice what she writes in early writings, page 63, paragraph 2. Inspiration states, There are many precious truths contained in the Word of God, but it is what? Present truth. What do we need? Present truth that the flock needs. Now I have seen the dangers of the messengers running off from the important points of present truth to dwell upon subjects that are not calculated to what the flock? Unite the flock and sanctify the soul. So what does present truth do? Unite the flock and sanctify the soul. So we need to know what present truth is. Amen? And what is present truth? Satan will take every possible advantage to injure the cause, but such subjects as the sanctuary, in connection with the 2300 days, the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So present truth that will unite the flock is the sanctuary, 2300 days, the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Are perfectly calculated to explain the past Advent movement and show what our present position is. Establish the faith of the doubt and give certainty to the glorious future. These, are, these I have frequently seen were the principal subjects on which the messengers should dwell. So one of the components to bring unity to the flock that is present truth is the 2300-day prophecy. And today we're going to learn deeper insights to the 2300-day prophecy. Now question, where is the 2300-day prophecy found? In what chapter and what verse? Daniel chapter 8, verse 14. The Bible says, unto 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. And we know that a day equals a year in Bible prophecy. Numbers 14, 34, and Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 6. So that 2,300 days is 2,300 years. Now, who was given this prophecy? Obvious answer. It was the prophet Daniel. And when Daniel was given this prophecy, something happened when he was given the prophecy. 
The Bible says in Daniel chapter 8, verse 27, when Daniel was given the prophecy of the 2300 days, that he fainted. That he became weak. You see, Daniel concluded that the sanctuary was a literal temple. And he was deeply disturbed that it would take another 2,300 years because Daniel was in captivity in Babylon, that he thought that Israel would be in captivity under Babylon for another 2,300 years. Now, how would you like it when you're anticipating you'll be free? Well, for example, for me, I counted the days for Thanksgiving vacation. Not that I hate my job, but I just needed rest. As a school teacher, you work about 14, 15, even 16 hours a day sometimes, just preparing and doing everything. So I was counting the days when Thanksgiving break would happen, and suppose I was in a perpetual loop that that Friday happened over and over again for another year. That would felt pretty bad, wouldn't it? I would probably faint. Is that correct? You see, Daniel had a similar experience, except he was in a far more difficult situation because he was anticipating liberty, going back to his homeland to worship freely. And so Daniel was really bothered, and he fainted when he was given this prophecy. He was highly disturbed. So what did Daniel do when he was disturbed? You see, I made this mistake as well. When we're bothered and we're disturbed, we often go to a friend We often go to a family member. We often go to a loved one. We go to everybody else but one that could give us a solution to all our problems, which is God. Rely more on flesh and blood and fallible man than infallible God. And Daniel, when he was deeply disturbed, what did he do? He went to God. And so the Bible says in Daniel chapter 9, verse 2, And three, the Bible says in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. So Daniel was anticipating that the 70 years would finish where the Jewish nation will be free from Babylon's yoke as Jeremiah prophesied. And so Daniel was anticipating that, but when he got the 2,300-day prophecy, thinking it's 2,300 years, he thought, oh, no, God is adding to our punishment another 2,300 years to the 70 years. But when Daniel was deeply disturbed, notice what Daniel did. The Bible says, and I set my face unto the Lord God to seek by what? Prayer and supplication and fasting and sackcloth and ashes. You see, oftentimes when we are in trouble, we Don't go to God, we go to man. But Daniel went to God in prayer. Prayer is oftentimes the third or fourth option in our lives. Is that correct? We often try this option and that option, and then when that doesn't work, we then go to God. But Daniel went to the habit of going to God first. And so Daniel prayed to get an understanding of the prophecy because he wanted to know, because, wait a minute, has God changed his mind? So how did God respond to Daniel's prayer? And while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. So Daniel prayed. But not only did he pray, but he prayed also for his church. You see, the Bible says that Daniel was a righteous man. He was a just man. There's no recorded sins about Daniel. 
Daniel was faithful in the time of Daniel chapter 1 when Nebuchadnezzar sought to feed the people wine and Babylonian food. He was faithful. He was faithful in all sorts of persecution, faithful when kingdoms changed over. He was faithful till the end. He was not in apostasy, but yet he confessed the sins of not only himself, but also the people. In other words, he identified with the weaknesses and the brokenness of a broken church. Oftentimes, I've been guilty of this. When I first started to be revived, at the age of 25, that's when I truly became a Seventh-day Adventist. I was born in the Seventh-day Adventist church. I'm a fourth-generation Seventh-day Adventist, but at the age of 25, something clicked. The Spirit of God went into me, and I started to learn about these three angels' messages, and then I started to feel that, oh, these people are the problem, and I'm the solution. I've been there. And God has to lead me through very painful experiences and to humble me and to break me to realize that, Peter, you're nothing. You're part of that broken body. You're not separate from that broken body. And so Daniel identified with the brokenness of the church. The Bible says he was a righteous and just man, but he confessed the sins of the church as the sins of himself. If we truly want to change on the church, we need to identify with the brokenness of the church itself. We have to identify, it's not their problem, it's my problem. It's not their fault, I'm at fault. You see, I did a wedding homily a few weeks ago, second time I did this. And I'm a single guy, so I really don't know what to say and what to advise the husband and the wife. But there's one thing that I've learned studying about Genesis chapter 1 through 3. You see, when Adam and Eve were confronted by God after eating the fruit, who did Adam blame? Are you sure? Didn't Adam say, it is you that gave me the woman? So in other words, Adam was blaming God. Is that correct? And so, Men have a time, have an easy time blaming, right? It's happened in the garden. But you know what God does? Even though it's not his fault, he takes responsibility for our failures. And so God takes the blame for our sins by sending Jesus to die for us. So too, we should be Christ-like. We should also take the blame for the sins of one another. It's not only their problem, it's my problem. It's not their fault, it's our fault. And that's what God is seeking to do. And that's what Daniel learned, that he confessed the sins of not only the church, but also himself. And so, how did God respond to Daniel's prayer? The Bible says, Yea, while I was speaking in prayer, and even the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, touched me about the time of the evening oblation. And he informed me and talked with me and said, Oh, Daniel, I am now come forth to give thee skill and understanding. Notice the sequence. Daniel recognized a problem. He did not understand the prophecy. He also identified himself with the brokenness of his church. And when he identified with himself the brokenness of the church and he prayed, God gave him wisdom and understanding. If we want to know the solutions to the church, perhaps we should pray, 
and also identify with the brokenness of one another. And then God will give us the solution, as he did by sending Gabriel. So in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 and 25, God revealed that the starting point of this 2300 prophecy was the restoration of the Jewish nation. And God revealed that this would happen in the beginning of what's called 457 B.C. This was fulfilled with the decree of Artaxerxes, where the Jewish nation would be restored, demonstrating God's mercy and forgiveness to a Hebrew nation. And although it was seeped in deep apostasy, God was seeking to restore their nation and give them mercy approbation. And so the timeline is, it begins in 457 B.C. And in order for us to understand the significance of that decree that the Jewish nation was restored in 457 B.C., we have to understand the history leading up to 457 B.C. I'm a history teacher, amen? Anyone love history? I hope so. Please don't fall asleep like some of my kids, amen? And so, what happened leading up to 457 B.C.? Why did Israel go into Babylon captivity, and what is the significance of what happened with the decree with Artaxerxes? Now, this is the condition of God's people leading up to the Babylonian captivity. Notice, God's people, from the political and religious leaders to the common people, worshipped Baal. Now, that's worshipping an idol. We worship idols today. We don't worship uh, stone and gold. We worship people. Isn't that correct? We worship people idols. They worshiped Baal and condoned child sacrifices. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 12 to 14. Can you imagine a church, your church, condoning child sacrifices? That was God's church at that time. That's pretty messed up. Is that correct? How many of you want to be in a church where it's child sacrifices? We want to get out of there. Is that correct? But it gets worse. In Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 11 through 14, the priests and the religious leaders committed adultery and was likened to Sodom and Gomorrah. Morality out the window. Progressive relative morality. We're in the apex of it in this area, isn't that correct? In 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 14 and 16, it gets even worse. Even though Israel was rejecting God's love, God sent prophets and messengers to come and to minister and to tell the people of the loving God that's seeking to lead them to repentance. But what did Israel and Judah do? They killed the prophets. They rejected them. And so what did God reluctantly do when God showed all this love? Finally, according to 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 18 and 20, finally God, respecting the choice of his people who rejected his loving protection, withdraws and allows the Babylonians to hold them in captivity. You see, as a school teacher, I go through this every day. I had a student there's a senior. I teach seniors and juniors. They need to pass my class in order to graduate. No if what buts about. There's a student that turned in zero work. None. Throughout the semester. Parents call me saying, what can you do for me? I want my son to graduate. I accepted late work. Never turned it in. I gave him extra credit provisions. Never turned it in. I even gave him an open book test that if he filled out the open book test packet in two hours that I would have him pass the test, he only filled one-third of the whole test. 
I did everything I can for him to pass that grade. But by his choice, he did not graduate. Likewise, God gave Israel every opportunity not to be in Babylonian captivity, but they did not get or they did not receive God's provision for mercy and forgiveness to receive a restoration and avoidance of that painful action. And so Israel was in captivity. And the Bible says in Jeremiah 29, verse 8 through 10, that God told the prophet Jeremiah that Israel will be taken captive for 70 years. Now, bear in mind, this is a church that kills children. The priests and the pastors are committing adultery in all sorts of devious manner. Baal worship, stealing of money, political instability. It sounds like the United States of America, doesn't it? But notice, in spite of that messed up, broken situation, thinking that they're beyond hope, notice what God did through the prophet Jeremiah. The Bible says this, For thus saith the Lord, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word towards you in causing you to return to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you, and ye shall seek me and find me, and when ye shall search for me with all your heart, and I will be found of you, saith the Lord, and will turn away your captivity, and I will gather you from the nations and from all the places whither I have driven you, saith the Lord, and will bring you again into the place whence I cause you to be carried away captive. In other words, God said, I am going to forgive you and restore your land. In other words, 457 B.C., that decree showed that God forgave Israel for all the apostasies of child sacrifices and idol worship and every bad thing that we think is really terrible. God forgave Israel saying, my nation, my love, I forgive you. Come back home. You see, we as Adventists, we know about the law. We focus on the close of probation. We focus on the seven last place. And therefore, when we get discouraged and we fall into sin, you know what happens oftentimes? And it happens a lot with Bible workers and people that preach the word of God. And when they fall, you know what happens? They give up. And they go straight into the world worse off than they come in. Why is that? It's because we don't realize that God is seeking to forgive and forget our sins. And so 457 B.C. marked the beginning of the timeline of forgiveness that God is seeking to forgive a wretched, poor, miserable, sinful people to come back home with him. That's why Faith I Live By, page 134, paragraph 4, says this. It is the privilege of all who comply with the conditions to know for themselves that pardon is, what? Freely. How many of you like free? I like free, amen? Freely extended for how many sins? Every sin, including child sacrifice, including sodomy, including every apostasy there is. None are so sinful that they cannot find strength, purity, and righteousness in Jesus who died for them. He is waiting to strip them of their garments stained and polluted with sin and to put upon them the white robes of righteousness. He bids them live and not die. Our sins are great. 
but we have a greater sin bearer and a greater forgiver who is Jesus. You know, Sister White says that present truth is what we need. What was the present truth message of this time? Notice what the Bible says in Daniel chapter 9, verse 5 and verse 9. The Bible says we have sinned and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. To the Lord our God belongs mercies and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. So the present truth message of the time of Daniel was that Jesus is seeking to forgive his people. So if we confess and turn away from our sins, God will forgive. What is the next point of the 2300-day prophecy? We go now to A.D. 27. And what happened in A.D. 27 that was of special significance? Notice what the Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 29. In A.D. 27, we see John the Baptist declared Jesus as the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world as Jesus began his earthly ministry, demonstrating that God gave all for humanity to make individual decisions to accept his mercy and forgiveness of God. So AD 27 marked the beginning of Jesus beginning his ministry here on earth. And what's the present truth message of that time? John chapter 1 verse 29. The next day John seeth Jesus come unto him and said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. And what is the message that was declared? Mark chapter 1 verse 15. The Bible says, And saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at Hand. In other words, they knew about the 2300-day prophecy. They knew about the 70-week prophecy that Jesus would come during this time so that time is at hand meant the prophecy in Daniel, the 70-week prophecy, and then connected with the prophecy of Daniel, the Bible says, repent ye and believe the gospel. And what is repentance connected to? What is repentance? To turn away from our... And what does God do when we turn away from our sins? He forgives. So the message is God is seeking to forgive our sins. That's the present truth message of that time. And what was the next point in the timeline? We have AD 31. In AD 31, we have the year that Jesus died for our sins. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8 through 11, the Bible says, For God commanded his love towards us in that while we were yet, what? Present tense sinners. Even though we're wretched, even though we reject him, even though we mock him, even though we say we don't want God, God freely gave all of heaven in the form of Jesus down as a gift to us so that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now much more being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. That word justification means as though that you have never sinned. So when you come to God and ask for forgiveness, I know for us Adventists, it's very hard for us to believe this. Because I've been there. If I sin, I feel really guilty. And therefore, I want to pass out extra glow tracks to make me feel better. Or I want to knock on more doors to make me feel better. That's how I was in ministry. But God says, when we come to him, much more than being justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. God seeks to forgive us at that moment. We're declared perfect when we come to him. 
For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, for whom we have now received the atonement. And so in AD 31, the present truth message of that time was that Jesus paid the debt to be the sin bearer. The fulfillment of the prophecy was that there was going to be a Messiah and Jesus came, lived a perfect life, and died and paid the penalty for our sins, took responsibility for us. Even though it was not his fault, Jesus said, I will make it my fault. He paid the debt in full. You know, America is astronomical debt. Isn't that correct? Jesus paid beyond that. He paid for the debt of sin for humanity. Past present, and future at AD 31. Can you imagine that? And what was the present truth message of that time? Notice what Jesus said while he was dying in Luke chapter 23, verse 34. And so when Jesus was dying, this is a message of forgiveness in AD 31. Notice what he said. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they do, and they parted his raiment and cast lots. So in Jesus' dying breath, he says, forgive. And you know how people responded to that? Notice, Matthew chapter 27, verse 54. There was a centurion. There's a pagan Roman Empire soldier. That was brutal, most likely. And he was the one responsible in overseeing the crucifixion of Jesus. And when he heard those words, notice what the Bible says in Matthew 27, verse 54. And when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly and saying, this was truly the Son of God. Jesus made believers even in his dying breath by the message of forgiveness. But not only that, What happened when Jesus' death and resurrection, how is Jesus' prayer for his enemies still being answered after he was resurrected? Notice what the Bible says in Acts chapter 6, verse 7. We know that the priests and the Pharisees were responsible for Jesus' death. Is that correct? They were responsible in collaborating with the Roman authorities in killing Jesus. And so we see here one member of that Roman Empire, the state, being forgiven and accepting Jesus. Now notice members of the church. The Bible says, and the word of God increased, and the numbers of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. When Jesus prayed, forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they're doing. God's word does not come back void. And those that killed Jesus were also forgiven and they accepted Jesus and became obedient to the faith. What was the present truth message preached at this time by the disciples? Notice this. The Bible says, and he said unto them, thus it is written, and thus it behoved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins, that means forgiveness of sins, should be preached in all his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, and ye are witnesses of these things. So we have here, 457 B.C., God forgave apostate Israel by giving the decree to restore the Jewish nation back from a church that was evil. You have in 27 A.D., you had John the Baptist declaring Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. And the message was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. A message of forgiveness. 
In AD 31, you have Jesus dying on the cross, and again, Jesus giving the message, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And then the disciples give this message of repentance and remission to all the world that Jesus is seeking to forgive and forget our sins. And then we go, what causes us to repent? Is this the fear of the seven last plagues that causes us to repent? Is it the fear of the second resurrection and burning a long time? Is that causes us to repent? The Bible gives us an answer. Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Oh, despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the what of God? The goodness of God brings us to repentance. It is the goodness of God. It is God seeking to forgive and forget our sins. It is God seeking to justify us. And if we believe that he forgives our sins, that is the goodness that leads us into repentance. And oftentimes, long-standing Seventh-day Adventists like myself, we're so focused on the Sunday law and probation closing and the seven last plagues, and we're so focused on these things, and we often forget that Jesus is there to seek to forgive us by his goodness, not by the fear of the judgment. And what type of message that did Peter preach during this time? The Bible says in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, And Peter said unto them, Repent and be ye baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission or forgiveness of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. In Acts chapter 3, verse 19, Repent and be ye converted, and that your sins may be blotted out or deleted. And the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. So the message of forgiveness came with much power during this time from AD 31 to AD 34, in that between that time period. And so what was the impact of declaring to the church and the nation that Jesus is seeking to forgive and forget our sins? Notice what the Bible says in Acts chapter 2, verse 41 to 47. The Bible says, And they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to the church. How much? I think we should focus on Jesus forgiving and forget our sins and our messages. How about you? In connection with prophecy. You see, what we're doing right now, this is what the journey that I'm in, we preach just snippets of the big picture. Some people focus on end-time events. Some people focus on the doctrines. Some people just focus on the love of God, but when we connect all of them together, that's when the power happens and 3,000 will be baptized in a day. I say that brings unity to the flock. Present truth, 2,300 days, the sanctuary, the commands of God, and the faith of Jesus. That'll unite the flock. You see, Satan has divided it. He has divided the commands of God from the faith of Jesus through the 2300 days and the sanctuary. He's divided it into different factions, and so that's why we're warring against each other. What God put together, let no man tear asunder. And so, as this message was preached between AD 31, the next phase is AD 34, and here is a sad episode. 
In AD 34 is when the Jewish leadership rejected the gospel and killed Stephen. And Israel as a corporate nation completely divorced themselves to God and made their final decision. You know when probation closes, brothers and sisters? We think probation closes by events. But probation closes by this. Probation closes when we make our final decision. Where nothing will change our mind. You see, those that received the seven last plagues, you know what the Bible says about them, why their probation closed? They repented not of their sins. In other words, nothing could change their mind. And so God is pleading with us. God is seeking to show his love. And God is seeking to win our hearts when our hearts are still soft. But when we make our final decision, God respects it. And Israel made their final decision. And as predicted in Daniel chapter 9, verse 26 and 27, as Israel divorced themselves to God and made their final decision, the city of Jerusalem would ultimately be destroyed in AD 70 by the Roman Empire. But Stephen, in AD 34, at his dying breath, said something very, very, very interesting. While AD 34 was fulfilling right when Stephen was being stoned, notice what Stephen said. Bible says, and they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, or a loud cry, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. With Stephen's final breath, Stephen prayed a prayer Father, forgive them. A message of justification by faith in the timeline of forgiveness. You know what's one of Stephen's persecutors? It looked hopeless for Stephen, is that correct? The Jewish nation was angry. They were gnashing their teeth. They were blaspheming the Holy Ghost. They were throwing rocks at them. And Stephen was praying this prayer, and it looked hopeless in the eyes of humanity. It looked like they were beyond redemption. You see, the Bible says faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not See, so in the midst of hopelessness, we should have hope that God's word be fulfilled, even though it looks like it's hopeless. That's a prayer of Stephen. That's a prayer of faith. That in the midst of a hopeless present condition, Stephen still had hope that God's word would be fulfilled. And so there was someone very significant when Stephen was being stoned. The Bible says in Acts chapter 7, verse 58, and cast him out of the city and stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. The prayer was answered as one of Stephen's murderers and the leading destroyer of the church, Saul, became Paul, the greatest builder of the Christian church and the champion of a message called justification by faith. You know why Paul wrote so much about justification and forgiveness? He experienced it. And so, can you imagine? Paul, this is how bad Paul was. I mean, forget that he killed fellow Christians and destroyed the church. He was an actual actor in the fulfillment of a negative prophecy of closing probation upon his own people. That's pretty bad. You're actually an actor. You're actually an initiator. You're actually a part of the prophecy of closing probation upon your own church. You're at fault. But yet he was forgiven. And the greatest destroyer of the Christian 
church became the greatest builder of the Christian church. There's nothing too difficult for God to forgive and forget. And once we preach this message of all the world, then Jesus will come in the clouds of glory. So this whole theme from 457 B.C. to 8034 is part of the 2300-day prophecy called the 70-week. Now notice what Jesus said about 70. The Bible says, Then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how oft shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him, till seven times. Jesus said unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, until seventy times seven or four ninety. It's like a subliminal thing that I'm still seeking to forgive Israel in this timeline of forgiveness. But there's one more date in this timeline of forgiveness. We have established 457, the decree for Israel or Judah to be restored to their lands. God was forgiving Israel for their apostasies of gross apostasy and immorality by returning and restoring their land. Then you have 8027, you have John the Baptist and the disciples preaching the message that the time is at hand. Repent, be, and believe the gospel. Forgiveness is come. Then you have 8031 where Jesus actually died for our sins and paid the debt and the message was that forgiveness has come and this message was preached to all of Israel. Repent and have your sins blotted out and have remission or forgiveness of sins. Then you have 8034 while Stephen was being stoned. He said, Father, lay not that charge over them that even though an actor of that execution became one of the greatest builders of the church and he with the message of the Holy Spirit, preach the message that Jesus is seeking to forgive and forget our sin. And we have one more date in the timeline of forgiveness. It is 1844. Unto 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. What is the sanctuary? Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1 and 2, the Bible says, And now the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of that majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. So the sanctuary is not the Jewish temple, but it is a heavenly temple, a heavenly sanctuary. But this sanctuary in heaven was taught by the sanctuary in earth in the Old Testament. And what happened when the earthly sanctuary was cleansed? Because in order for us to know how the heavenly sanctuary was cleansed, we need to have an understanding of how the earthly sanctuary was cleansed. You see, in summary, when someone sinned in the Hebrew economy, the sinner brings a lamb or designated clean animal to the outer court of the sanctuary places his hand on the head of the animal, confesses his sin, and slays it with his own hand to be sacrificed, signifying that it is us that killed Jesus, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. We're responsible for the death of Jesus. But that's only the first part. You can find that in Leviticus chapter 4, verse 32 and 33, and John chapter 1, verse 29. Now, once that blood was shed of that animal, 
Then that blood was transported to a curtain between two rooms inside the sanctuary. You have the holy and the most holy place. And the blood of the sacrifice is placed in front of the veil of the sanctuary in Leviticus chapter 4, verse 6. In other words, once someone sinned, the blood of that confession is now placed in the curtain. So there's a record of that sin. Is that correct? And it's accumulated. Can you imagine how that sanctuary smelled in the desert throughout the year? Bugs and mosquitoes and everything like that. I'm sure it was pretty nasty. It smelled pretty bad. I think God was trying to teach through the object lesson of smell how stinky and how grievous and how dirty sin is. And so every time we confess our sins, the record of our sins is now transported and accumulated to the records of heaven in the heavenly sanctuary. Just like the sanctuary on earth. Every sin that we confess is now accumulated there. But as it accumulates throughout the year, God is a God of order and God is a God of cleanliness. Is that correct? And so on the seventh month, on the tenth day, that day of atonement, the children of Israel were to afflict their souls and search their hearts to see if their sins are confessed and place belief that their sins are forgiven. And so what happens there is this. The blood that accumulates throughout the year, that curtain was now clean and cleansed. And all the records of sin was now blotted out. You see, God is not only seeking to forgive our sins, but he goes deeper. He wants to forget our sins. We hold grudges. But God is not only seeking to forgive, but to forget our sins. And when we model that in our churches, then we'll be ready to declare this message to the world. And so this Day of Atonement, Jesus gave a model of God forgiving and forgetting our sins. We talk about this judgment hour, this time of evaluation, this investigative judgment, like, oh, it's a fearful thing. Oh, it's terrible. I've met Adventists that are so scared of the investigative judgment. But do you know who the judge is of the investigative judgment? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. The Bible says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he had done, whether it be good or bad. So the judge is Jesus. And what is this judge seeking to do? You know, judges here politically, you know what judges seek to do? Judges are voted in, in the state and local level. And criminal justice judges are seeking to place as many bad guys behind bars and to sentence them with tough sentences so they could get reelected. Is that correct? But this judge is different. What does God seek to do? The Bible says the Lord is our what? Judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our, and he will save us. This judge is willing to declare us not guilty. Why are we afraid of this investigative judgment? So what are we to do in this court? What are we to do in this judgment? Notice what the Bible says in Proverbs 28, verse 13. He that covereth his sin shall not prosper, but whoso 
confesses and forsaketh them shall have mercy. It doesn't do well to hold on to that sin and ask for forgiveness. We want to really want to get rid of that sin and ask for forgiveness. And once we do, God is seeking to forgive and to forget that sin. And so what does the judge do? What does the judge do when we confess and forsake our sins? Notice the Bible says in Psalms 85 verse 2, the Bible says, Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people. Thou hast covered their sins. You know, the Bible says that love covers a multitude of sins. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 8, that love covers a multitude of sins. You see, I believe the purpose of marriage is this. Marriage is meant for our salvation. Because a husband and wife sees every flaw possible. You're naked of everything. Your soul, your body, your motives, every flaw is clearly seen. But God is trying to teach us, just like God sees us as wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, he seeks to cover us with his love. So too, husband and wife should cover one another with their love. And that's what God is seeking to do. He's seeking to cover us. He's not seeking to expose us of our sins. He's seeking to cover us. Because he's seeking to take personal responsibility for the damage and the mess we caused. You know, one thing that I hate is taking blame for something that I did not do. I hate it. But I praise God I'm not God, amen? Because God is willing to take the blame for our mess. He became the mess for us. He became sin for us that knew no sin so that we could be free from sin. And so this message of forgiveness is that Jesus is seeking to cover and to forgive and forget our sins. So the Bible says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 and 9, the Bible says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from how many sins? All sins. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins, and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. You see, there is one in the Bible that committed grievous sins. He was a politician. He was a leader. He was David. The Bible says in James chapter 2, verse 10, that you break one of the commandments, you break them all. But you look at the story of David and his sins. He, what did he do? Accessory to murder. He stole he committed adultery. He lied. I mean, for, I mean, he deserved ultimate condemnation. But the Bible says in Psalms 51, verse 1 to 3, the Bible says the chief musician, a psalm of David, whom Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Notice what David said. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out thy transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. David confessed his sin. And God forgave him. Even though he deserved death. You know what the difference between David and Saul is? David acknowledged that he injured the heart of God and confessed his sin. Saul was just worried about his own personal position. He was all about me. David was all about God. 
But there's another component. David was forgiven. But there was a response to that forgiveness. And here's David while he was in his dying breath in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. And the Bible says that David was cold. And his friends brought the most beautiful woman in Judea to keep him warm, a young virgin. And she was very beautiful. And the Bible says, and the damsel was very fair or beautiful and cherished the king and ministered unto him. But the king knew her not. In other words, David did not commit that sin that fell upon him before, which is that of women. He gained victory over that. The fruit of forgiveness is obedience. And so, as we confess our sins in the sanctuary, in 1844, Jesus is declaring that he's seeking to forgive and forget our sins, and we accept that forgiveness and accept that righteousness. That righteousness is not only a legal declaration that we're perfect, but God is now working in us that we obey him. Not because we're earning our way to salvation, it's because we love God. Because we demonstrate our love through action, isn't that correct? It is a human relationship. In human relationships, we demonstrate our love through and so because David was forgiven notice how God views David now the Bible says in 1st King chapter 14 verse 8 the Bible says and rent the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it thee and yet thou hast not been as my servant David who kept my commandments and who followed me with all his heart and to do that only which was right to mine eyes. Wait a minute. What happened? We read that David committed multiple sins. He didn't obey the commandments. He didn't do all the right according to the eyes of the Lord. But what changed? God forgave him. God gave him a new heart. And God covered his life with Jesus' life. And so when God sees David's life, he does not see that murderer or thief or adulterer. He sees one that keeps the commandments and follows with all his heart because Jesus' life is in place of David's. And the record of David's sin is now also forgotten and blotted out in heaven because Jesus is seeking to forgive and forget our sins. As so the Bible says in Isaiah 43, verse 25, the Bible says, I, even I am he that blotted out thy transgressions for my own sake and will not remember thy sins. And so, the God that remembers everything, the God that sees the entire picture of everything of existence, the atoms that are small and that are spinning, the eyes and the numbers of our hair, that has a vast repository of all the knowledge in the universe, God is seeking to forget our sins. What wonderful grace is that? We as human beings, we remember every bad thing that happens to us. Isn't that correct? But our Creator is seeking to forget. So in 1844, Jesus now began the work 
of the records of sins being blotted out. 457. God forgives Israel and Judah and restores the land of Jewish nation back to restoring the temple, even though they did grievous sins. 8027. John the Baptist declares, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. The Lamb has come to forgive our sins. 8027. Jesus dies for our sins. And with his dying breath says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And that message impacts a Roman centurion and the priests. And many were obedient to the faith. Then that message is declared to all the known world at that time that Jesus died and resurrected the third day and now is seeking to forgive our sins. AD 34. As the probation of the Jewish nation falls, Stephen with his last breath says, Father, lay not that charge against them. Forgive them. And out of that terrible episode came the destroyer of the Christian church become the greatest builder. And the message of justification by faith that Jesus is seeking to forgive our sins is declared in great power. 1844. Unto 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Jesus is seeking to not only forgive our sins, but to forget our sins. To blot them out. And that is why the Bible says in Revelation 14, verse 6 and 7, And I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel. The preach unto them that dwell on the earth, to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him that made heaven, the earth, and the sea, and the fountains of water. You know, in my earlier days, I thought, how can the judgment be the everlasting gospel? The judgment is the everlasting gospel is because Jesus is the judge. And Jesus is seeking to blot out the sins, the records of sins in the sanctuary to forgive and forget our sins. So therefore, the judgment is good news, saying that Jesus is soon to wipe out sin forever. This is the message to preach to a sin-dying world. This is present truth. The forgiveness of sins is present truth for this time. The message that do you truly believe that Jesus actually forgives your sins and lay hold and accept it is the message for this time. And once we preach this with power, we are ready for Jesus to come. You know, we say we have to get ready for Jesus to come. Get ready, get ready, get ready. You know how we get ready? We believe and accept that Jesus forgives us. That's how we get ready. And that's why inspiration says, in Prophets and Kings, page 319, paragraph 3, have you, reader, chosen your own way? Have you wandered far from God? Have you sought to feast upon the fruits of transgression, only to find them turned to ashes upon your lips? And now your life plans thwarted and your hopes dead. Do you sit alone and desolate? That voice which was long been speaking to your heart, but to which you would not listen, comes to you distinct and clear. Arise ye and depart, 
for this is not your rest. Because it is polluted, it shall destroy you. Even with a sore destruction, return to your father's house. He invites you, saying, Return unto me, for I have redeemed thee. Come unto me, here and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you, even the sure mercies of David. Do not listen to the enemy's suggestion to stay away from Christ until you have made yourself better, until you are good enough to come to God. If you wait until then, you will never come. When Satan points to you your filthy garments, repeat the promise of the Savior, He that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Tell the enemy that the blood of Jesus cleanses from all sin. Make the prayer of David your own. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. This is the timeline of forgiveness. This is unto 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. The whole 2,300-day prophecy is the message of the gospel, the everlasting gospel, that Jesus is seeking to forgive and to forget our sins. I don't know about you, but this makes my heart melt. Are you struggling here today, brothers and sisters? Are you discouraged here today? Do you feel that as things are happening before our eyes, as prophecies being fulfilled, as we see end-time events being fulfilled, do you feel that you cannot make it have hope? Because Jesus is seeking to save us. Because he's going to forgive us. We can make it, brothers and sisters. Because it's not us, but it's Jesus working through us. The everlasting gospel is that Jesus is seeking to justify us and to forgive us. So if you're discouraged, don't be. There is hope. God has made every provision for us to be saved. Our Father and God in heaven. Father, we thank you that even in the 2300-day prophecy, there is the gospel. We thank you that in every point of the 2300-day prophecy, you seek to forgive us. And Father, in the name of Jesus, I just ask that if there's anyone struggling here today with doubt, with insecurity, or struggling with temptation or sin, Father, may they have the assurance and the security that the goodness of your love will bring us into repentance. And brothers and sisters, as your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, is there someone here today to say, Father, today, I want to accept your goodness. I want to accept your forgiveness. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Father, activate the measure of faith in my heart because I am so weak. Help me have the confidence that you forgive my sins. If that's your desire, I simply ask that we kneel for that experience if that's your desire. Holy Father, I am kneeling because these messages are for me. And so, Father, I thank you that even in my broken journey, you're revealing your love to me that I could share with your people here today. And Father, here today, we are kneeling because we are weak. Flesh is so weak, Father. At a flip of a hand, we can be all crazy. 
And so, Father, here today, knowing our weakness and knowing that Jesus identifies with our weakness, that we are here to gain a greater appreciation, a greater understanding, a greater acceptance of your forgiveness. And so, Father, help us today to have a more glimpse of your love, to accept your forgiveness and your love that we truly believe that you will forgive our sins. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Help us, although we feel hopeless, have hope in the word of God, that you will forgive us. And Father, we thank you the promise that you will forgive our sins and justify us as though that we have never sinned. And Father, today I ask for more power and more love to those that are hurt, those that are doubting, that they may and that I fully surrender to thee. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.